Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. Today we have Dr. Cindy Royal, professor at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Texas State. Um, she is a 2013 Charles E. Scripps Journalism and Mass Communication Teacher of the Year winner, 2013 Presidential Award of Excellence in Teaching winner, and a 2013-2014 Knight Journalism Fellowship at Stanford University. And also, on top of all that, I would say that Cindy is my social media sensei. So we're, we're coming full circle. Um, I definitely owe a lot of, I guess, the fact that I even started this podcast to my experiences in Cindy's courses, and she's introduced me to a lot of, a lot of folks that I've actually had on the podcast, like Mark Bristol, I first had interviewed him at South by Southwest Interactive back in 2009, and that was all part of Cindy's class. So it's a real pleasure to have you on today, Cindy. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to hear about the kind of things that you're working on these days, especially, you know, how, how you've progressed since you were in my class, which seems like just yesterday, but it really was like a decade ago. Right. And it's strange that I think in that decade we have, we've arrived in the Biff Tannen timeline, right? <laughs> Going back and looking, I had such a positive outlook, I think, in, in 2009, 2008, surrounding social media, and I think that's that's taken a dark turn. Um, I don't know if you... What do you feel like? I mean, I agree that since the election, things in social media have taken a dark turn, and I notice it now. Every conference that I go to, people are talking about um, fake news. I mean, that's that's been around actually before the election. Um, and there's more and more evidence that the use of social media in this election uh, steered things in a way that people were surprised by, whether they're happy with it or not. I think a lot of people are surprised by the effect that social media had on it. And if, when you look back at the way Barack Obama used social media in 2008, it was mostly about fundraising right. and having it be like the crowd contributing to the campaign and how successful that was. But now... They're, um, you know, with potential Russian ads and all sorts of fake media outlets being able to publish stories that were virally shared on social media. And um, just, you know, the different ways that social media has been used from a data perspective to understand more about the audiences and target messages. I think it is beyond what any of us would have imagined like 10 years ago. And I had mentioned this kind of when we were talking before the show, but I remember reading, and this, I guess, t actually ties into the Obama point you made about fundraising, uh, sort of that, you know, being in the long tail of political, I don't, what's the word, like donors? Because <laughs> I remember, I, right. I think I donated maybe a dollar here and there to Obama's campaign just to sort of get the experience of it, right? And just sort of participate and that element, I think I even I might have contributed to Ron Paul or something <laughs> crazy like that back in back in 08. But I mean, that's the whole theory behind crowdfunding. When right. you do a Kickstarter or a Pledge Music or something like that, you are part of the crowd. That's, you know, individual contributions may be small, but then they add up to something that's meaningful to whoever's doing that. And uh, the political environment was on the forefront of that with Obama's campaign. But we're, we're well beyond that now right. in terms of what social media can do for a campaign. I probably never would have donated any money to a political campaign before it, you know, the internet or social media would have you made that a, you know, a more accessible thing for me to do, right? Right. It's easy. It's accessible. Send it through a text message or you know, we're so used to like clicking on buttons online. 
as opposed to other ways in the past that you would have to really make a point to reach out to the campaign to be able to contribute to them. So that got to be a lot easier. And um, some campaigns really took advantage of that. But, um, you know, like I said, we're just beyond that now in terms of the effects that social media has had on campaigns in terms of just understanding who the audience is and being able to target messages directly to them. Facebook not necessarily taking responsibility for that, or at least, you know, since the election, they've been talking about maybe they need to be more transparent and have more accountability for the role that their algorithms play. Right. Um, but, you know, the Trump campaign, I mean, there's a, there's some different research that I've read that really talks about the role that social media had in this election. And um, the one research paper uh, by uh, Shannon McGregor is one of the co-authors that I'd sent to you. And then somebody from North Carolina um, had said that, both campaigns got assistance from the social media companies, but it seemed to help Trump's campaign more in terms of um, the focus that they were having. And I think, you know, Clinton was really relying on the fact that she had a large staff and lots and lots of funding. And uh, the Trump campaign really proved that as long as you have data and you're able to target messages, you can have a dramatic effect. I mean, just enough of an effect to put him over right. the top and win. And I think that's pretty dramatic because i think you know i've always been beating this drum of we need to get money out of politics this campaign sort of threw things on their head in, in that regard although i still think that you know in discussing because i had a a gentleman uh brendan steinhauser who was actually john cornyn's campaign manager and he was telling me that sort of like that that's what the the donors want to see that you have some personal money or you know what i mean you have some backing financially before they're willing to you know take a, a risk on you so to speak so i think that money definitely still plays a role but i mean again i think trump is sort of a special case really <laughs> in many many ways <laughs> right. but i mean when you say take the money out of um campaigns and it's like we didn't know what would be replacing it right and now we kind of know <laughs> you know viral discussion potentially fake news and targeted information um Really, this was the first time that they kind of experimented with what are the things that would motivate people to potentially vote a certain way. We're just at the beginning of that, right? Sort of weaponized information. Yeah, I mean, you could you could look at it that the way. Disinformation. Yeah, you could. I mean, you could definitely look at it that way. What I was going to say about Trump being a special case was that he had that he did have the TV show. You know what I mean? He already had that sort of built-in brand as he's a he's a savvy businessman, right? That was sort of his brand in the public. Um, in the public eye, so to speak, at least yeah. popularly. Yeah, right? I mean, never underestimate the power of celebrity. So I guess that means we have Kardashians in, <laughs> you know, the future elections. So um, I, I, I don't really know what to say about that in terms <laughs> of how the future is going to go with this, because I think what we're finding is that potentially having a celebrity at a top position like president may not be turning out the way people would have thought. Um, it's much harder for them to work within the confines of the political system, um, not necessarily able to drain the swamp the way that they thought they would, and um, maybe not having the decorum that people were used to in leaders at that level. But, I mean, we've had celebrities before run for governors and senators and representatives, and obviously Ronald Reagan was the most famous one to run for president and to, to become president. Um, but we're in a kind of a new world of that now. And so if we're going down a path of celebrities being the only people who can um, move into the highest position, 
we probably need to have higher expectations for our celebrities. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of people are saying maybe Oprah would be a great candidate. I mean, she has no experience politically, but she is a savvy communicator. And um, a lot of people like her and can relate to her. And so she would have as much of a chance as Donald Trump has right. had. I mean, she has a probably a stronger brand than he has I had. Think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely more positive. I mean, depending on who was running against her, I would very likely vote right? for I Oprah. Mean, <laughs> you might be forced to, so to speak. But yeah. I actually saw that Oprah, is, she has her own brand of soup now. Yes, I have, I've seen those commercials with the soup. <laughs> I have not tried them yet, but I, I probably will because right? of that brand. Exactly. <laughs> I thought that was I'm, I'm not sure funny. that like soup brand leading to presidential campaign, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't discount anything. Uh, she, she's a disruptor in the soup space. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and somebody needs to disrupt that space. Definitely. <laughs> Actually, I was going to say too, that uh, Zuckerberg is also someone that I've heard a lot of um, being, his name's being thrown up for the next presidential election. And so maybe once upon a time, we might've looked at that differently, but I think in this context, especially what you were referring to with Facebook and the targeted ads and sort of them even acknowledging how, the role that that played in the election. Um, I don't know. He's sort of, he feels tarnished these days. He's a bit of a celebrity too. I mean, he right. has name recognition and I think a lot of people would support just that. I mean, how many people get a movie made about them too, right? About, you know, your starting and your founding of this very influential company. So there's going to be that. I think people give him credit for being super smart and for having, you know, been uh, an entrepreneur who've created something out of nothing. I mean, talk about a success story right. uh, as a as a business person. Um, how how effective he'd be and what his motivations would be for running for the top office. I'm I'm not really sure about that, but you know, we saw him speak at South by Southwest in 08 or 09. I can't remember. What, I think it was 08, one of the first years that we went and. Um, you know, he was just young and full of uh, optimism about the way that his platform could change the world. And uh, he, he will either need to get back to that or he'll have to come up with some like new way to position himself, I think. I think he actually showed up. I believe that we went for barbecue at yeah. maybe Ironworks or yeah. something like that. <laughs> I have this great picture of one of the other students, Philip Hadley, yeah, who I jumped that, up. Actually. He threw his camera in my <laughs> hand, a camera I had never used before in my life. And it was literally like, click, okay. And it's the best picture ever taken because they look like they were best friends. But if you remember, he was like with us for maybe half a second. Right. So <laughs> that, that moment was captured. <laughs> I believe uh, in the, in the uh, traditional uh, North Face fleece or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It was, probably it was something very tech wearing that he had on. I probably could dig that picture up somewhere. It was definitely one that I used for years on end. Like, look at the kind of people get to meet at South by South, uh, South by Southwest. <laughs> <laughs> right. Our next president, perhaps, but uh, yeah, <laughs> now that now that would be something to be like we knew right. him when, yeah. I think that that sense of our entrepreneurship, in particular, is something that would maybe be able to cross the aisle in terms of drawing maybe some bipartisan sort of support for him. But I will say that you know I'm I'm fairly new to the kind of I guess the left wing or more even socialist um, elements in the podcastosphere for lack of a better word and they all they are not big fans of Zuckerberg at all I mean I think he's gonna have to come out with some positions on some issues before anybody can decide what kind of candidate he's right. going to be so I mean I, I really can't even make a judgment other than just 
His character to this point has been questionable in terms of throughout his career. I mean, you know, the motivations for starting Facebook has been criticized and, but he, he was young and he True. had, he caught on to lightning in a bottle and went with it. Um, and like I said, he's super smart and has created something that's very, very valuable, but I don't know anything about his position on issues at uh, any, anything. Right. So I guess he hasn't really come out with any r- right. real statements or anything, but he's sort of, I think, testing the waters. It seems. Yeah. Well, again, he's going to have to have some positions on issues <laughs> before people who like really care about the political process are going to either back him or you know go against him. Um, Cindy, one thing I wanted to do actually, uh, we kind of jumped ahead. I was I wanted to kind of back up and get a an idea of when you sort of got involved with technology. Like, when did technology or when did that sort of strike you? When did you kind of develop that interest? Wow. Okay. So <laughs> going way back. Um, you know, I started my PhD at UT in 1999, but before that, I um, worked in the technology industry. I worked for NCR Corporation, and then I worked for Compact Computer for several years, and um, worked in a variety of businessy roles. Uh, you know, finance, a little bit of marketing, some accounting stuff. Pretty, pretty boring stuff. But it did kind of expose me to the potential of the tech industry. But when you think about that time frame, it really was people making computers. It was pre-web, pre-web 2.0, sharing, social media. None of that stuff was happening. And really pre-the startup scene. I mean, a company like Compaq was a startup, but then it became (laughs) very, very large very, very quickly. Um, And it wasn't like this whole entrepreneurship push that people have now. So... um, a friend at work showed me some HTML one day, and I thought that was cool. And I started <laughs> goofing around with some HTML and made a little website. And it's really the website that I still have now for when I go to concerts and see oh, really? shows. Yeah, oh, on that okay. note, well, <laughs> it wasn't its own domain for the first year. I think I had an account on AOL. You could actually host um, HTML files on AOL at the time. And uh, then I eventually got my own domain on that note.com and just you know started goofing around with having my own website. And at that time, there were no blogs. It wasn't like right. I wanted a site about me, which is what it kind of became when blogging became popular. I was like, well, I'm boring, but I will talk about the bands that I like to see. <laughs> you know, what, what do I like? And I'll start working on um, my skills that way. And that really kind of turned me around. I started really paying attention to the tech industry from um, the way that it was progressing from social media and digital and I think the thing that I loved about it was that there were no gatekeepers. I could have a website and somebody could come to it and they could read it and I could put it up online at, you know, the instant that I thought about it. But again, this is pre-blog. I mean, you had to know how to make some HTML pages. I used Microsoft front front page, <laughs> you know, uploaded this stuff, learned how to FTP. And then over time, then we started getting, you know, Blogger and WordPress came along. And then even after that, like the ability to click instantly communicate with somebody through social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or now Instagram, Snapchat. I mean, I I would have never imagined all that stuff. But what I did like was this disruptive nature of the technology is that nobody can tell me what I can publish. I can publish anything I want for better or worse. Now (laughs) we've seen kind of the result of like, you know, hundreds of millions of people publishing whatever they want online. And um, I was interested in it so much that I decided to quit my job and get a PhD, go to UT. I mean, I looked around at a few different places and selected the University of Texas because 
even though their mass communication department was not really focused in this area, I felt like I could get a good grounding in communication there. And then they had many, many other departments throughout the university that I could tap into to get more technology knowledge, whether it was comp sci or business or um, social psychology. I mean, I was really able to pull together a program of study that was pretty well-rounded for the time. And um, when you think back from 99 until now, the dramatic changes that have happened in the technology world, I mean, I just feel so uh, blessed, thrilled, happy that I jumped on this path at the time that I did. I had no idea how things were going to turn out. I just had a sense. I had just a little sense. I'm like, well, this could really change the way we communicate, I guess. And, you know, (laughs) it sort of, it sort of worked out. And, um, after, you know, graduating from UT, being able to move into a role where I'm teaching, and I actually did teach as a, um, as a doctoral student as well, but being able to share the changes and the disruptions in this industry with students over the years and to see the kinds of careers that they've been able to move into has been really fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm just really proud to see all the kinds of things that students have done that we would not have even anticipated when they were in our program, just uh, having to encourage students to be flexible and problem solvers and lifelong learners, I think has been the most gratifying part of it. I think it's so cool because I'm looking back at my own sort of interest in technology and it probably really started back. I went with my uncle in the early nineties. He was going to look at a laptop at a Dell store somewhere here. And I don't even remember where. And so I was like playing around on a laptop there in the Dell store. This was like windows 3.14 or something like that. Um, and then just just kind of hooked me. And then, let's see, I'm from a rural school district, so we didn't get internet access at school until I was a freshman, I think, in 1997. And when I heard this idea of like what a web page was, that kind of blew my mind. And the same thing, it was like, oh my God, I can I can publish something and the whole world can see it. And that idea just, I don't know, it just filled me with excitement. It filled me with, you know, just like, enthusiasm for this technology and the power of it and what have you yeah and so i think i even had either like a geocities <laughs> web page or maybe there was another like fortune city or you know there's so many providers back in the day that would give you like 500 mm-hmm. uh, megabytes or some <laughs> megabytes of space yeah. for you to post your page and it ended up being basically something like a uh what later would be like a myspace kind of page you know because mm-hmm. i didn't really know what to do with it except sort of share these interests that I, whatever I was interested in at the time, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if you go, if you really want to go all the way back, I mean, you know, my first introduction to computers, uh, we did not have computers when I went to school and even in undergrad, I went to the university of North Carolina, did some things, uh, some computer science classes I took and learned the Pascal language <laughs> just one summer for fun, you know, and I remember thinking that was like a really fun thing, but having no clue that I would ever want to do that as a career. And I even remember people saying, computers, that's the future. You need to be a computer programmer. And I was, I remember having a violent reaction to that. Like, no, no, I don't want to be a nerd. You know, that's, you know, <laughs> even though this stuff is fun. And we had, a, I did a couple things in undergrad where it was like a simulation, a business simulation class. So we had to put data into a simulation and get results out of that. And I did a statistical methods class where we use computers and that, and it probably was like a mainframe that we put stuff into right. at that point. It was not punch cards. personal computers, right? <laughs> I think it was post punch cards, uh. but not, not much post punch cards. Right. 
And then um, when I got my MBA, I went to the University of Richmond and got my MBA a couple years later. That's when personal computers were really kind of starting to take off. Not that anybody owned them, but they would be like in computer labs that we could use. And I remember we all had a bootleg copy on a five-inch floppy of uh, something called Harvard Graphics, which is like the pre-emptor to PowerPoint. <laughs> and like the, the dog and pony show of presentations started then. Everybody oh had to have that floppy <laughs> and had to make, you know, some kind of like bigger fonts and some, you know, graphics for their presentations. It was definitely like a competitive thing. So from there, then, you know, and, and I work for computer companies. So we had computers at work and then eventually bought it at home. But I was never one of those people who played games or... Um, was on any of the gaming platforms. I feel right. like I kind of missed that um, and didn't, you know, have a lot of early experiences with computers other than than these things that I just mentioned. But but a few, I mean, enough to kind of like make me realize I liked it. It's funny that you mentioned Pascal because <laughs> I've actually sort of, I was sort of looking, I've been thinking about getting back into coding and looking back at these sort of discussions people are having about languages like Pascal that are so specialized in and older that like nobody programs in these things. So you can actually make a lot of money doing like COBOL and, yeah, I, and have Pascal no, I have no and... recollection of my Pascal days, but I do, <laughs> I do remember like being frustrated with the program and then going to walk around campus in the moment of like, wait, that's the way to solve the problem. <laughs> and that's still how I solve problems now where it's like when I'm working on it, sometimes the answer doesn't right. come. You have to re- kind of remove yourself, go for a walk, go do something else. And I remember just because it was a summer class and I think it was the only thing I was taking. I was obsessed with that class for like six weeks. And that, I mean, I'm a little bit like that when I program now, you're like obsessed with completing something, solving a problem. And, uh, that's the, that's the way to do it. Right. And yeah. then, then the solution comes to you in the shower or whatever. Yeah, you. And you're like, voila, I must get to the computer. <laughs> Eureka. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that Eureka moment. Um, so it's kind of funny too, along that same line. So I think there was a, there was a provider called homestead.com and I think they may still I remember be, them. They may still be around charging for their, for their platform. But so that was my most developed website. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it had a WYSIWYG editor that was really cool. So you could even do, I think I had a JavaScript little, I don't know. It's not an applet that's Java, but I had a little pop-up window whenever you would come on the site that would say, welcome to my website or whatever. And you click okay. So it was pretty cool that you could even incorporate yeah. JavaScript little snippets or what have you yeah. into your site at that point. Yeah, but, I, I remember a very funny SNL sketch with Jimmy Fallon where he was the computer help guy. <laughs> and he said something like, he was always very smug. And he would say, he said something one time like, like AOL understands JavaScript. <laughs> and I laughed hysterically. And I know like, you know, 99% of the population was like, I don't get that joke. What the but hell is yeah, that was the best joke ever to me. And I, I still remember it now. <laughs> right. I think it's funny that it seems like JavaScript has come back to the forefront of oh, yeah. coding, mm-hmm. which I think is so strange how these things will wax and wane, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of strange too because I teach JavaScript now, very, very heavy JavaScript. We teach that um, in terms of the interactivity that it can introduce in HTML pages. And I think that's the beauty of it is that it works really well um, in an HTML coding environment that does not need any additional plugins. We were going down that path of things like Flash for a while. You had to have a Flash plugin. And then when we went mobile, things needed to be really stripped down. 
One, because Steve Jobs didn't want to put Flash on his devices. <laughs> smartly, I guess. Smartly, because they were going to be battery hogs and clunky you know, plugins that wouldn't work efficiently on a mobile device. So when people started using JavaScript to introduce interactivity, these um, DOM changes, this document object model that you could actually grab a value from something on a page and then manipulate something on the page, that's kind of what interactivity is introduce a way that the user can have some control over the page. So I'm glad that JavaScript has had this resurgence. I mean, it's not just for um, little trendy things to pop up or to have a counter on your page. I mean, people have really figured out. <laughs> Remember the, yeah, God, yeah, I, I had, had about a, from, from my uh, 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 Microsoft front page, I'm sure that I had like a counter that, you know, looked like one of those uh, things that were dialing with different right? numbers. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know why we needed that, but we felt like we needed that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I have not thought about counters on websites. Yeah, and I, I, I literally have not thought about it in probably a on 10 my, years. any of my websites now, but we get <laughs> lots and lots of analytics behind the scenes. Uh, yeah. So it's just a different kind of a counter. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> I was thinking too, um, when I was preparing to talk to you about you know, I would, we had like a 33.6 K KBPS modem at the time. And so I would have Napster or something going, I, I would set it, I would have my list of songs going to download overnight because we only had one phone line at the house. So I would let it go like at midnight and then I'd get up at like 6 AM and all my, all my songs would be downloaded. And then I'd plug the phone back in so my parents wouldn't get mad. I mean, think about how far we've come with music since that time frame. Right. And, um, while Napster no longer exists, I mean, you have to give them credit for starting this whole craze of people wanting to listen to music online and also credit for maybe really being kind of the first social network because not only were people downloading music, they were talking about it and sharing and there was ways to communicate on that platform. So I think it developed this kind of niche and music's a pretty broad niche, but they found people who were passionate about a topic and they were motivated to do what you just said, like where you plug something in and have it go all night because you just you just wanted to have that music so bad. And the music industry's sort of knee-jerk reaction was shut this down, shut it down. They didn't really care about the users really, really wanting to engage with their content. And I, I talk to a lot of musicians about creating community around their music. And I really think anyone that's online needs to create community around what they're doing people have a hard time with understanding what that means and how it might be beneficial to them or even profitable to them. But that's what that's what they're doing. And it may not mean selling CDs or getting streaming revenue. But if you have a community around what you're doing, there, are, there have to be things that you can charge money for and they could be different for everyone. Right. Um, and it may not be uh, touring in the traditional sense of what people are used to. I mean, touring can be very, very expensive and not necessarily profitable. But, um, I, I, you know, again, I think, I think that everybody's trying to figure out what the community is around what they're doing and then be able to, um, you know, figure out ways to make a business model out of that. Yeah, it def definitely was a huge disruptor in that space. And I think so many more i mean things have definitely moved in that direction of creating a sense of community almost like the grateful dead sort of absolutely model, yeah right? it's, it's not new right this idea right. of like creating community around your music people are dying to share these cassette tapes because every show was a little bit different right absolutely that yeah my my roommate is a huge grateful dead fan and we were talking about this the other day 
And on the flip side, um, I actually went and saw uh, King Crimson at uh, Bass Concert Hall last week. And so that, that's actually, they have a song, 21st Century Schizoid Man. That's where I got the name for the podcast. Ironically, too, I saw Rodney Gibbs there. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't talk to him. I but see I, Rodney in a lot of interesting shows. <laughs> He's got very good taste in music. Right. So <laughs> I, I did see him there. I didn't get to speak to him, but I just thought that was kind of a funny tie-in. But what <laughs> I find frustrating with King Crimson in particular is they don't, they have like one live album that's available on streaming, but none of their music really is on streaming services. You can buy it on iTunes, but you can't stream it. And I just think that's such a... I don't understand that mentality. Well, I mean, I think from the user's perspective, we can't understand it. But from their perspective, they're trying to figure out what's the best way to um, capitalize on what they've created, right? right? And everybody's got a different way of feeling about that. I think for most musicians, if they're thinking that streaming is going to be their main revenue source, they can't they can't figure that out. Like the math is not going to work. Right. So if they don't get beyond that, they're not going to have a profitable music career. That doesn't mean they won't have a music career, but it may not be profitable, right? Um, so, so they have to think broader than that. They have to think much broader than I'm selling music to what does this community want from me? How, how can I cater this community in the best possible way? I also think in, in this particular instance of King Crimson, you know, this is a band that's been around since like 1967. Right. It's like... How are you going to attract new listeners to listen to your music if it's not available? You know what I mean? I think it's so I think you're sort of for a band like them, they're shooting themselves in the foot by not making that music available for people to stream because then I might, you know, if I'm able to listen to your music, I might like it and then I might pay to go see you. Right. I mean, you know, the old model is a supply and demand thing where there's right. like a limited supply and you're creating this sort of demand for something. It's not like that anymore because, first of all, you can have as much stuff as you want on the web and it doesn't cost you more, the whole long tail thing, it doesn't cost you more to distribute one versus a million. Bandwidth is really cheap. Um, and so, you know, it just makes sense that you would share what you're doing in right. that manner. It also, unfortunately, means you can't really generate profit that way from what you're doing directly, particularly in the streaming sense. But... People who come from that old model are having a hard time making that transition, I think, because music used to be like a 401k. You would make it and it would be out in the world and it would sell and you'd get revenue from that forever. And that's not that's just not the case anymore. You know, there, there just have to be other things that people have to do to generate value um, from their community. I mean, first of all, you have to create that community. You're, right. you know, you're some dude with a guitar who nobody's listened to. You've got to somehow tap into the feel of an audience to get them to pay attention to you. And then you start growing that tide. And then from there, you know, then you figure out what is it that your audience wants from you? Like how much sharing do you have to do for them and that you're comfortable with that, you know, fits your personality and how you would integrate with them in, you know, live events or merchandising or other things that you can figure out how to do. Yeah, because I'm also thinking about looking around at the average age of the person, at the attendees there at the concert, and I was definitely one of the younger, yeah. one of the younger folks being there, which is usually not the case yeah, these well, it's days. Good that, I mean, they're lucky that people still go to see them, right? Right. You know, yeah, yeah. But not, uh, not everybody has fans like that, right? Especially, I mean, that's a kind of pretty obscure 
ish band, I guess. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I don't understand someone who is so innovative musically not being able to translate, okay, I'm you're losing out by not making this this content available it's to your just, fans. It's just the old model. You know, they're, they're just, they just don't really understand. Because you came from a model where you protected your copyright. Right. Right. And now we're in this idea of like music is just free and wild, not free in terms of not paid for, but just widely available and what that can build for you. I mean, and I think there are a lot of musicians who are like, yeah, I mean, people say that, but I still don't understand how I'm going to make money from that. <laughs> and I don't think there's one answer that you can tell them. I think like they have to carve out the way to make money on their own. It's going to require them to be creative, which they are. Right. You know, um, musicians share a lot about themselves and their music, but I find sometimes they don't want to share on social media and, you know, maybe that's something that they need to do to be able to have more um, people who care about what you're doing. Um, that doesn't mean tell private things about your private life, right. but, you know, share a little bit about what your day to day is or what your inspiration or what you're listening to or, you know, anything. And so, I mean, some are doing better at this than others, but um, I, I think, I, I don't know, I think I think we're just at such a, an early phase of this and we're going to see things moving in a drastically different direction for many musicians. Many people who thought this was going to be their career as a musician um, are going to find that it's, you know, a totally different environment out there. They may have to work forever. You know, some musicians think I will work for 10 years. I will become super famous. I will do a tour after that every five years and everybody will be excited to see me. And, you know, I'll put out a, you know, a new album every couple years or so. That That's just not the model anymore. I mean, they, they may have to be, and, and we see this now, they may have to be touring forever. Right. Like the, uh, well, I guess speaking of King Crimson, I think they're like in their 70s, yeah. getting close to 70s. I mean, if they started in the 60s, they, <laughs> they have to be, right? Unless they were children when they. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. So it was, it was an experience. It was a good, good show though. Good show. You have to love what you do. I mean, I think like, I think with any of this stuff, um, if you are somebody working in the media or you're a college professor who deals with media or you're a musician, I mean, if you don't love what you do, you're not going to keep up because right. it's a lot to keep up. And so if you resent it or don't feel like keeping up, you probably won't. But if you kind of love it and you're fascinated by it and you're excited by this stuff, then you're more likely to keep up and then you're more likely to be successful. So I mean, I think there's some cultural things that people have to accept. Definitely. Getting out of that old paradigm of the way things used to be. I'm really excited for how this is going to impact the, I guess, the film industry. Because I think, you know, obviously prices have lowered. It's, a, you know, it's a lot more feasible to make your own film, but it's still not on the same level that music is. You know what I mean? And I think it's in dire need of it because we keep recycling the same ideas over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not as much into the film, although I you know enjoy good films and enjoy going to see films and I go to South by Southwest and I go to some of their panels and we do see that the technologies exist for people to be able to tell their own stories. And one of the best talks I ever went to at South by Southwest was Mark Duplass, you know, Duplass <laughs> yeah. brothers, like, like it was so good that he was like, get your friends together, use your iPhone, start filming some shorts, 
make them funny, get them into a film festival, and then just go from there. And he was really talking about disrupting the film studio's hold that they have. And he and his brother had uh, resisted working with big film companies. I mean, they have in different ways over the years. Um, but, you know, he, he, kept, he kept using this mantra where he would say, you know, I, I thought once we got at this point in, the career, in my career, the cavalry was coming, but the cavalry never came. He, he kept, you know, building and building. I, I thought the cavalry was finally coming. The cavalry never came. And uh, I, I don't know if you uh, censor uh, profanity in oh, this <laughs> podcast, but <laughs> he gets to the end of it and he goes, I realized, fuck the cavalry. I am the cavalry. I don't need them. I have created this own, my own band of friends, like-minded people who appreciate the same kind of art. I don't need to work with a big studio. I don't need to um, change my sensibilities or my ideals to be able to work in this industry. And uh, that's not necessarily like an attitude that was around 10, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, you felt like you had to do things right. that way. So I, I love hearing people. I mean, he's obviously very talented. He and his brother Jay are very, very talented. They've done some amazing things um, and very experimental. They try, they try out new stuff all the time <laughs> um, and have been able to be successful in doing that. And they're one of the few in the film industry. I think, you know, they're sort of like the indie film guys that maybe are that's why the musicians are a little bit further ahead because there's more of them right uh, than there are of the duplass brothers but i was i was really really inspired by that talk i definitely think if you're wanting to get into film it's like don't waste money going to film school or even you know working in the film industry is not fun <laughs> it's a very blue collar hard like 12 hour days minimum you know what i mean it's it's brutal actually making the film happen. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would never tell anybody not to go to film school or not to work in an industry because I think all the experiences that you get are valuable to you. But I think the most important thing is the doing exactly. something. Make like, something. Yeah. So don't just go work on a film and be a grip or a PA or something. And then you're too tired to do anything on the weekend. Like that's the thing that's supposed to be training you and teaching you and at least letting you know what it's like now so you can subvert right. the system and then take what you learn there. And then on the weekends, you know, shoot a little video with your friends. And, you know, I, and I, I really can't emphasize enough. And in so many things that I see, it's about the content. Humor is hard. And if you're a good writer in a comedic sense, you're going to find a way to express yourself. And I think a couple examples of this, we just had somebody on campus for MassCom Week. His name is Matt Nelson. And he does Twitter, Instagram for this um for these accounts called We Rate Dogs. I don't know if you've heard of this thing. Of and he gets people to send him pictures of their dogs and he puts them on his Instagram and he rates them and he always <laughs> gives them good ratings. It's usually uh, nice. like out of a scale of 10, they get more than 10. Like this was a 12 <laughs> out of 10. It's his, he has a funny sense of humor. Like when he says the stuff. So people just look forward to seeing the pictures of the cute dogs combined with his funny comments, Right. And another example of that is Red versus Blue. And I think you were in my program when we brought Bernie Burns to talk about Rooster Teeth and Red versus Blue. Or at least it was that early time frame when I had, he's, he's visited Texas State several times. Um, the machinima that they did with Halo, they hacked Halo so that it can make it like it, like it was their own movie studio where they used the stormtroopers from Halo, but they wrote really funny 
content, really funny little jokes and scripts for the stormtroopers to say to each other. And now that's the longest running web series on the internet. And they're still in Austin. Um, they, you know, do all sorts of live action films now, and they've merged with um, some companies from LA. So, but you know, you can have all the technology you want, but if the content isn't right. there, and it's you know, even this dogs guy, he said, throwing up pictures of dogs is great, and there are other sites that do that where they just like look at cute animal sites. But it's the value of his content, his humorous content with the pictures, and he. He just sort of stumbled on this magical combination. What's that old? Wasn't there content is king? Was it? Yeah. I feel like that's in the recesses yeah. of my brain somewhere. I mean, yeah, and content is still king. I think. I think that phrase gets a little bit tired because <laughs> you do have to think about how the content interacts with the platform. Now, I mean, you can't look at content separate from the platform um, because your audience is on the platform, how the audience engages with the content is on the platform. So if your message isn't really aligned with the platform, then you probably are kind of missing something. But yeah, I mean, it's still like an important aspect of what you're doing is the content that's being created. Um, and especially, like I said, around humor. Humor is hard and people who do it well are, are going to be successful. I've actually, so a couple of guests that I've had on, Tom Booker is one, has done some work with Rooster Teeth, and I think Mark Bristol as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Booker, he is the, he runs the uh, Institution Theater. It's on South Congress. It's a, uh, they do improv and stand up and stuff like that, but really funny guy. He's great. I mean, a genius comedic, I mean, his comedic timing is great. I took a sketch comedy writing class with him, and he was just like, his notes were just, Boom, just brilliant. And you're like, oh, this, I need to get to that level. I mean, I, I wish I were a funny comedian type person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm I mean, I think, it. I mean, that is something you, you can kind of work on. You can commit yourself to do it. And you have to be like ready to try stuff and fail like, like you would as an entrepreneur. Like I think being a stand-up comedian's got the same features. You know, you get up in front of a crowd and bomb, and then you just got to get back up and do it again, right? Yeah. I've been actually thinking about doing a five minute stand up routine. And I think my, my first bit is revolves around how, if you have an at AOL.com address, I'm just, I'm not fucking with you. I just can't, <laughs> I just can't. You're just, the gap is too large. I just can't. Yeah. I don't have I, time for you. I, yeah. I, well, I mean, it definitely like sends a message to people when you, <laughs> when you send something on an AOL account. Um, I mean, I guess I do uh, a, a, a bit of a stand up routine every time I get in front of a class. It's just like the worst stand up routine you've ever, <laughs> ever seen. <laughs> Everybody bombs. Yeah. Everybody bombs. That's the first rule like of comedy. Just like the most unfunny stand-up routine when you're a college professor in front of a class, you know. Silence. Yeah. Washes over the crowd. But uh, let's let's back up. Let's kind of, we started on this whole discussion about, I guess, how the social media has sort of morphed and evolved in, in a different route than we probably would have would have ever thought in 2008, 2009. I think there was so much promise back then but i want to talk to you i sent you this article about it is a cambridge analytica that is a company that's owned by robert mercer and steve bannon was an investor and so i guess they use this psychographic profile information to i guess target not only i guess trump voters but also they could target a hillary voter um in a, with a negative campaign 
and they could sort of prey upon that person's individual neuroses or what have you and post send them a post that would make them not want to vote <laughs> things like that uh, i think that's an interesting development that kind of you know takes that we were kind of generally talking about that topic and really gives it some teeth i mean it's really big data right i mean facebook we just look at facebook i mean a lot there are a lot of social media platforms now but if we just look at facebook they know everything about you they know what you're thinking about what you like who your friends are they can create a profile of you that is so detailed and then the ability to sell that to people who care about it is um ex we found that is extremely viable and profitable for them um it's a bit of um, this, we have created this monster and it's kind of brilliant when you think about it. I mean, Facebook is a platform. It wouldn't exist if we didn't post things on it. I mean, that's sort of what happened to MySpace. People <laughs> stop using it, right? And so there's always that fear. We do the work for them and then they are slowly and methodically over time capturing data about us that they could potentially use against us. Right. Um, I think the idea of us doing the work for them, you know, I, I had kind of talked about this earlier in research, in, in earlier years in research, like maybe they should be paying us. We're doing the work for them. It's so far beyond that now. I mean, we, we derive a lot of value from using social media. So it's social capital. It's not monetary capital. But they're deriving a lot more value by the, the act of the masses just, you know, happily giving away all sorts of information. And it's not just Facebook. I mean, look at Google, too, just from a different direction. Right. If you're logged into a Gmail account and you're searching, they know everything you're searching about. They can do that on you individually. And even if you're not, they're still gaining a sense of what the zeitgeist is, right? Certainly. Yeah. They can read your emails. They can go through your, you know, Google documents. Yeah, I mean, search history. I they mean, own Blogger and they own YouTube, uh, and right? you know, I mean, they own all that. They own, yeah, they, so they know everything about you. I will say that I'm not completely negative still about the future of social media because I think, you know, while things are maybe different than what we had anticipated, you know, the early phases of social media, like I can post something out there and everybody can see it, and that's cool. I mean, that still exists, and we still see uh, the use of social media in political strife in other parts of the world where it's allowed people platforms. I think it still to some extent does allow for giving voice to the voiceless, especially as we've seen people shooting videos and being able to see what actually happens when certain arrests are being made. And right. these are all things that are you know, now coming to light that had always been happening, but now we have ways to kind of prove it and share it. Um, and I think that the ways that brands are using social media. I mean, we should have really anticipated that, a, you know, commercial entities would want to jump on board here, that it wasn't always going to be like this individual circumventing the system. Um, but the ways that brands are engaging with users to uh, allow them to create their own content or to share or to, to entertain them in some ways. I mean, I was talking to students yesterday about, yesterday about some of their um, favorite accounts to follow that were professional accounts. And so people mentioned stuff like Whataburger and you know how they're really funny. And they mentioned you know some different brands that they follow that are like sports brands that they like. And it, it took them a while to even realize they were following brands. I mean, I had to kind of pull it out of them. Like, 
do you follow a sports team? Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's a brand. You know, right. they just thought they were following their favorite team. So, you know, look, and, and okay. So then we're so far beyond Facebook and Twitter now where it's Instagram about visuals and Snapchat, Snapchat right. which is the more sort of private thing. And we're really looking at demographics in all these areas because I don't use Snapchat that much, but I know, you know, younger people use it. And it's like that combo of being a messaging app as well as a social media platform. Um, and then, you know, of course, brands try to get in on that where they want to, you know, to be part of the things that people follow, create stories, have uh, funny pictures, use the filters and things that people have on there. And now they have that... Um, uh, augmented reality stuff. I don't know if you've seen like you can create a bitmoji and then you can actually put it in the environment that you're in. So oh, I did not like a little cartoon of myself on a skateboard in this kitchen, you know, and you just like they, they have a different filter for an augmented reality. So it looks like it's in the space that you're in. Interesting. But, but then yeah, yeah. So like I was playing guitar in the living room and playing, you know, skateboard in the kitchen and I mean, it's just like they're really kind of getting there. They're experimenting with things quite a bit. But I'm hearing that Instagram is kind of overtaking Snapchat. It seems like even young people are kind of tired of Snapchat and they're sort of moving to Instagram because you can do the stories the there. Stories and, now, yeah. yeah. And so that maybe they're not as much into the personal messages that go away. Personally, I don't like the ephemeral going away kind of media because if I post something on a site, I'd want to go back to it in the future. But... I can, I can understand why that there are people who don't want to have things that kind of stick around forever. Right. But you have to think about what that content actually is that exactly. they don't want to have sticking around forever. I mean, like, I, I don't think I would have ever predicted something like Snapchat. Like, right. Because that just doesn't occur to me to yeah. have stuff that would just go away. But there was a need for that, clearly. I don't think I even anticipated even Instagram. And I was even late. I was totally late on Instagram. I don't even mess with snapchat <laughs> ever really i just yeah i mean i have I a snapchat i have a snapchat so i can kind of like play around with it but i mean i you know i'm definitely not in the demographic and most of my friends are not on snapchat but i just do it to kind of i follow some brands um i follow like when we have stuff at school like MassCom week has it's a snapchat so i want to you know kind of pay attention to that i mean i like instagram because i like the visual nature of it and that really shows the value of the interface because things are visual on twitter now I think led by something like Instagram and Facebook owns Instagram, but things are visual on Facebook, but it's such a simple interface of just picture, comment, picture, comment, picture, comment, and some, you know, people commenting on your posts that, um, uh, had to come into play when we all had the ability to take great pictures all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of, uh, yeah, I guess once the iPhone and smartphones really hit that inflection point, yeah. then it became possible i mean like all this stuff though i mean twitter wasn't that meaningful until we could be somewhere and tweet because if you're sitting at your computer at home right i'm sitting at my computer at home like what are, you know what are you doing right now facebook like to be out in the world and be able to use an app to post on these things really made them much more interesting very and true. got more people using them i still remember something very your opinion about what twitter was was so brilliant and was so good and it sticks with me it sticks with me to this day so you were always talking about it's not about who follows you it's about who you follow you listen you pay attention listen. that's amazing <laughs> of course and I, I stole that from somebody else but yeah i mean and that's where it kind of hit hit me because when i first heard about twitter i was like well, i don't have anything to say on twitter but then it just i heard somebody else say that and it occurred to me 
Well, yeah, I would like to know what certain people are thinking throughout the day. And if they're sharing that, sure. And I remember like people like Kevin Rose who ran Dig. You know, he was an early sort of tech pundit type right. person. Not even a pundit, but, a, you know, a tech entrepreneur. And I would see him at South by Southwest and it would be like, oh, I would definitely want to follow him to hear what he's thinking about, what's important to him, what he's talking about. And you start getting a stable of 10, 20, 50, 100 people that you're following like that. You continue to follow them. And then after a while, you feel compelled to join in the conversation. Then you do pretty quickly figure out, I have I have something to share and to say. And um, being able to share with other faculty around the country and world, Ooh, yeah, I, has, I mean, that. has really been quite valuable to me. I mean, once we all started getting on it and paying attention to each other, I think Twitter is obviously less uh, impactful these days. There's not as much engagement going on in Twitter as there used to be. But in the early days, I mean, that's how I connected with people. I would meet them at conferences or I'd get to know that they were somebody important. We'd start following each other. There are definitely people that I know mostly from knowing them on Twitter, maybe a couple conference meetings here and there, but I do consider them my close friends and sort of like-minded compadres in this digital academic world. <laughs> so, um, I mean, those were, those were important times, I think, when we really started capturing the value of using social media. And so that's why I don't, I don't want to really emphasize the negativity that seems to be in the current space. Right. But we, we need to be cognizant because, like I said, I think we've created this monster and we need to kind of see where it's going. I mean, I still recommend to students that they reach out on social media to you know do whatever kind of research they need to do. If they're going on an interview, they can use it to augment in-person conversations and you know <clears throat> being able to meet people, being able to network and use social media. And I also encourage them to use it positively. Like, it's not like don't put bad pictures on social media or don't talk about illegal things, you know, like, yes, you should not do that. But really like, what can you do on social media to um, draw people to you? Like, what should you be talking about? That's not just like your day-to-day -day silliness, but, Oh, I found this article to be kind of interesting or look at this project that I made in my class or, you know, something so that when they look you up and they will look you up <laughs> They just know that they are looking you up, that there's something there that says, yes, we should hire this person and not like, er, you know, next applicant. Um, so it's a complicated ecosystem, right? It's sort of like it's here and we need to figure out where we're in it. And we have to anticipate uh, where it's going to go in the future. Do you think, I haven't really paid attention to this as much lately. Uh, I had I think I even took I took maybe a couple of years off I didn't where I didn't tweet at all just because I had some er error with my app and I was like eh I just wasn't <laughs> engaged with it anymore but I feel like at at a certain time news really broke on Twitter mm -hmm. um, I'll give you a great example is I think in 2012 whenever Bin Laden was killed mm -hmm. I still remember where I was I was on my couch it was mm -hmm. like 11:30 at night maybe midnight mm -hmm. or something and I, I was, was on that couch right there. <laughs> In my house, and I remember seeing, like, you know, get ready, Obama's going to announce something, right. and then all the tweets, like, what they thought it was going to be, yeah. Exactly. I remember when that broke, and that was, like, maybe 20, 30 minutes before mainstream media picked it up. Well, and it was the guy who heard the helicopters that were happening in where, wherever it was, Islamabad or wherever it was, that tweeted, 
I heard these weird helicopters, what's happening at this time of night? Like, like he tweeted that and that was like the tip off that this is where this was happening and people were able to figure that out. Um, I think Twitter is still great for breaking news and it's still used for that a lot. It's just not a growing platform. So I worry about its future viability. Right. Um, Facebook's algorithm, and now Twitter's taken on some algorithmic type features, but Facebook's algorithm really prevents it from being a great breaking news platform. They, they could obviously fix that if they wanted to or create their own sort of space for that. Twitter's always been great for just that timeline of following stuff as it comes out. Um, and the succinctness of the tweets, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to now supposedly bring it up to 280 instead of 140. And then there's obviously lots of images and video in your feed now. So it definitely looks much more like Facebook. But I think when you go back and look at the history of Twitter, it's like almost amazing that they're still a company because they have not had good management, right. consistent management for years. The, the amount of strife that they have had in that company really is kind of incredible that they're even still around. But uh and they they latched onto something that yeah for a while it was really the most important thing uh, particularly for news uh, to be to be had. The good thing about Twitter is you don't have to be on Twitter to look at stuff that's on Twitter. I mean you can know that people are tweeting about something. Um, you can even see things in widgets on other people's sites. You know you don't have it's not like Facebook where you have to be on Facebook to use it. But I think that may also have been their sort of you know putting them in this decline is right. that they weren't able to like kind of capitalize on the fact That's that it's true. like it's like a it was it's a micro blog so like you're just blogging and you can anybody can see this if they go to your page or if they know how to search for it you know uh, <laughs> good old twitter i really i don't know about you but my personal experience is like anytime i start going down my timeline I get depressed. I get depressed or angry or something. Like oh, nine times out of ten, it depends on who you're following, right? I mean, like that's the other thing about Twitter and Facebook. I mean, it's like it's all about who you follow. If you follow all happy, shiny people, right. you're gonna have a happy, shiny timeline. And if you follow a lot of negative sources, then you know that's what you're gonna get. So it's it's really kind of up to you. But then it creates the bubble, you True. know, that you get to pick and choose who you're paying attention to. So. Um, it, it, it's all, like I said, a very dynamic ecosystem. It's not an easy environment in which to be a communication scholar, but nobody said that this should be easy. <laughs> I, I think that a lot of people that are doing this kind of research maybe don't necessarily comprehend the um, variable nature of it. And then it, it just makes it more difficult to like isolate the variables that you want to study sometimes because you can't say that Twitter is one thing or that Facebook's, Facebook is one thing or that they have one type of an effect right. uh, on a person's usage of them. It's, it's a pretty vast environment that has to be really deeply understood to be able to even and, and you know, quickly changing environment. So what the uh, influences and the phenomena were last year, it's completely different a year later. Definitely. I think what's kind of interesting, and you kind of spoke to this a little bit, was how I, it's sort of interesting to me how sticky that Facebook has been. And even Twitter, even though, like you said, it's it's not the platform it was, but Instagram, Instagram probably less, but I think even going back to like a Reddit or something like that, because I'm thinking, you know, I joined Twitter in 2007 2008 so that's almost 10 years on the platform mm -hmm. i think i've been on reddit i think my membership is like eight years old but i was on the platform before then 
And I think it's kind of interesting how sticky some of these things have been because, you know, it seems like there was that time when it was changing, you know what I mean? Because it was like Friendster and then whatever else those yeah, old I mean, school platforms were. I mean, you can look at each platform and see the demise of them, like what they did or didn't do to continue being relevant. Nobody at the time would have thought MySpace would have gone out the way that it did. And I think... When Facebook came about, people were like, well, there's no way that this is going to overtake MySpace because there are millions and millions of people and they've got all their friends there. But MySpace didn't continue innovating. Like they let Fox <laughs> News Corp buy them, right? And uh, Rupert Murdoch thought, "I we've got this MySpace. What else do we need to do now? We're young and hip and cool. And that, you know, it, and it just died. And I think... Um, I say this a lot, but just don't underestimate the power of a clean interface because people just gravitated toward Facebook and they didn't even know they were gravitating <laughs> toward it. It just looked cleaner, more organized. MySpace was crazy. People thought they liked the craziness <laughs> of MySpace, but guess what? They went right to Facebook. So I think there were you know a couple things. I think there were things that mistakes were made in the early days of Friendster, because Friendster really was the early Facebook, right? And their idea of connecting people that were connected to each other, I mean, this whole network effect thing, they were the first ones to really delve into that. Then they went down the path where it was more of like a hookup and dating site, which Tinder is totally fine with being that <laughs> now. But at that point in time, like I think it, like, it went through that purpose pretty quickly and then other things took over. And then, you know, like Twitter came along and I would not have predicted something like Twitter would have been popular at the right? time. It, like I said, when it first came out, I was very confused by it. Even now, thinking about it, how the hell did it work? Like, I really, how did they even... Yeah, I mean, I, I really thought in that time frame that we'd be going down the path of um, either niche social networks or something that would help us aggregate our social presence, which we don't have any of those things <laughs> even now in 2017, right? Um, but then this other sort of multi-purpose thing, Twitter came along and it's, you know, caught fire. So, um, it, it's hard to say the kinds of things that provide value to large numbers of people, but you know, Twitter was one way in terms of the timeline and the kinds of people that got on it, like academics and news people. And, um, there's some different niche groups who have, uh, used Twitter in appreciable ways. And then when you move to Facebook, like it was first for students in college and now it's like grandma's on <laughs> right. Facebook. Like, I mean, like that trend, the, the progression of it was, is sort of unbelievable when you think about it. Now everybody is on there. Yeah. It's so crazy how and, things And a lot change. of people are not. I mean, I think the young demographic is kind yeah, of dying out right? from Facebook. Or I think they feel like they have to be on it because they want to like connect with grandma now. I mean, it's almost like an obligation to be on that space, but they're really doing maybe the valuable social work in other places. I think and, so too. And we have to be aware of that. Right. <laughs> because now it's like you're that, that guy that you didn't like in high school is, is posting his racist comments or, yeah. <laughs> or what have you. Yeah, or... <laughs> they gotta go. Yeah, <laughs> that uncle. I gotta, I gotta get back in the bubble when that happens. <laughs> I've gotta, you know, nix them. <laughs> There's always great memes about that, about that, about that racist guy that you went to high school with, right? Yeah, <laughs> and we we all have them. <laughs> uh, that's another thing. Is have you have you ever messed have you ever messed with Reddit or 4chan or any of that side of things? No, I mean you know I will read articles on Reddit, but I was never like a really um, a user or uh, somebody who like had an account on the site. Um, you know, Reddit, sort of like Craigslist, I mean, they don't care about their 
design their interface, but they have developed a community, right? I mean, there are certain people who want to communicate on Reddit and want to express their opinions. Very, 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 very early version of social media before we had social media. I actually, I'm a big advocate of Reddit. And obviously, you know, some people like the big, like the, the, uh, what's it, the Donald or something invaded my Reddit, which is... (laughs) angered me but before that uh, some of the communities on there are just were really outstanding um, I became really obsessed with the uh, the Game of Thrones book series and the discussion that would go on on that forum was just incredible and I mean it, it was like super incredible it's, it's any type of these little niche hobbies yeah. or things that you're interested in it's so great because it curates you know people are always posting the latest news or articles or conversation about whatever the topic may be Well, that was like the early days of the internet before we had the web when there were these news readers that you could be on these news groups and people were creating them on different topics. I remember I was on one for the Simpsons TV show or I liked the Bare Naked Ladies and they were kind of a nerdy band and so the fans would sort of all gravitate. And back then you had to have a news reader. Right. Google reader, I think. Yeah, sort of like you had to have an email program. Right. You had to have like a separate newsreader and you had to know how to tap into these news groups and then there'd be like threaded discussions. So Reddit was like the next step beyond that, that that allowed that to continue on the Web. And then certain types of communities have thrived on Reddit. Right. Um, and I guess they might not have been the first, but they're definitely one of the first that, like, based on the popularity, right. is what got Except stuff on the front page. Dig was dig was the the, more, at the time. Yeah, was I mean, the dig, more... dig is like. I mean, you dug something that's the same. Like, they invented the like, right? And so, I mean, you have to give credit to things like Dig and Reddit for pioneering that kind of idea of the crowd being the uh, editor, the gatekeeper. Well, that's why I mentioned Kevin Rose before. I mean, he right, was the founder yeah. of Dig, and he has a he had a news background, and so that's why his thing was like, let's over, let's disrupt this idea of editor, which is so crazy too when you're talking about design aesthetic. <laughs> Looking at Dig compared to Reddit, it's kind of no comparison. Like, you know, Dig was very slick and kind of Web 2.0, and it it's not here anymore. Yeah, you know, I think they just sold out. Yeah, you know, I think it ran its course, and then those right. guys are ready to move on to something else. But yeah, it's, like I said, I think it's fascinating that Reddit sticks around. I don't know. I I'm all I'm on there all the time. I love it. It's yeah. probably my favorite social media platform probably ever just because it's so it's so useful, you know what I mean? It's like if I want to look up how to podcast, there's a podcasting subreddit and yeah. there's a there's a community of people that are doing that. There's a community of people that are whatever your interest, whatever little niche hobby or interest you have, it's there and you can discuss, you know, with other people that are into that same thing, which I think is really yeah. cool. Yeah. And I, I mean, that is a great thing about the internet and the web. And uh, when I'm encouraging students to figure out their own problems with their coding exercises, to be able to use something like stack overflow, to be able to get an answer to something that, you know, that, you know, or there's a YouTube video to probably show you how to do that. I mean, like there's just so much potential to be able to find information on the internet and really encouraging people to be as self-sufficient and resourceful as possible and not always rely on somebody else to to do something for you i mean there's like a whole world of knowledge to learn out there right and it's also so cool to be able to tap into that sort of wisdom of crowd element of it too and i think that maybe that's what makes reddit valuable to me is just being able to see what people's other people's experience is 
Yeah, I mean, they have rules on Reddit, I guess, about conflict and discourse, but there have been definitely times where there are things that have spiraled out of control on Reddit too, right? Yeah, I'm sure with, I mean, different Reddits have their own, you know, they have their own uh, moderators that have their own rules, so they can definitely kick you off. And I think there's been controversy since it was bought by, I think Condé Nast bought Reddit. And so there's been backlash against, I forget. More like traditional legacy company. Right. So there was backlash at, I forget who the CEO or there was some some conflict uh, maybe about a year or two ago. But anyways... I love it. I never got into 4chan though. That was probably that was maybe a little bit too geeky. I think that was more 4chan is more like gamer centric. Yeah, I mean, I never, I never really got into it, and it doesn't seem to really have any meaningful use nowadays. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's where the alt right sort of arose. The, yeah, well, the that, that Kekistanis would, that would, and whatnot. That would be a meaningful use to at least tap <laughs> into that. Yeah. Um, speaking of, actually, you might find this interesting. Because it's on the same, along the same guidelines, is um, there's a lady, Angela Nagel. She's done a lot of research into sort of these alt-right groups online on 4chan and on Reddit and and things like that and sort of how to combat that. She's really interesting. Uh, I think she's an academic, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know her or this research, but obviously this is, you know, when I say that it's a very complex environment and right. requires people to study things that really kind of understand the environment. I think this is the kind of research we're going to need to do. I mean, had the election gone a different way and it was close to have gone a different true. way, a lot of the stuff we're talking about now, we would not be talking about. That's very true. We would not be talking about the effects of the alt-right. We might not even <laughs> be talking about the alt-right right. at all. And we might not be talking about fake news and have like every discussion at every conference be about misinformation. Um, it, it was really that election that kind of turned the tide on what these effects are, what these features are that are causing these effects. You know, when I, if I'm really honest with myself, I probably wouldn't, I don't know if I would have started the podcast if it wasn't for the election. Wow. Well, okay. There was that <laughs> up, upside. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've sort I'm, of, I'm, there are a lot of um, endeavors that have been put <laughs> into play since this election. Right. Yeah. I mean, because to me, so I'll give you a little bit of context. So I guess, you know, the Iraq war, I was I was against the Iraq war. Um, then the financial crisis in 2008. And so and then there was a lot of hope with Obama, right, that sort of didn't feel like it ever became truly realized. You know what I mean? I think expectations were a lot higher than when, what we ended up getting. So I kind of divorced myself from politics. I just didn't didn't keep up with it because it just frankly it drives me crazy it really it angers me it depresses me it upsets me <laughs> this is like i like i tell you when i look at my twitter feed it's just like oh god what's happening now <laughs> what should i be outraged at now um i know the feeling i mean <laughs> yeah it's something we're all kind of dealing with because i think no matter your political affiliation some of the things that are happening, some of the like the tweets that the president makes or some of the ways that things are being portrayed are disturbing on both sides, right? I mean, it's not the decorum that we feel is part of that office. And so, you know, we're in this place where we're having to kind of deal with the news about every one of those things. And 
understanding that some of them are maybe distractions from the truly important issues that we should be talking about. Right. And, you know, we can, we can blame the president. We can blame the media for focusing on those things. Um, but it's a barrage. I mean, at this point, it's a barrage. It's not one or like some of those things, one, any one of them would have killed another politician's career. One little thing would have killed a politician's career. And the fact that like day after day after day, we hear things that just upset so many people that, and then we have to deal with it and then we have to go on and we have to figure out, you know, like the state of the country that caused us to get here. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty depressing. I'm very depressed now, <laughs> Cooper. <laughs> well, here, here's a, here's a funny throwback. I mean, when you're talking about one little misstep could have, you know, messed up someone's political career. What about Howard Dean with that? Pyaw! Yeah. All he did was like, <laughs> and, and then it was over. Right? right. Like we've like, like Trump has done so many worse things oh, than God. that. And yet he is our president. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but so it, to go back to that context of like, it's like, it was like the Iraq war, the financial crisis, and now Trump, those three things all together, just, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I just feel just overwhelmed with like, I'm just, what I stand for, what I thought America should stand for feels like it's done nothing but lose my entire kind of adult life. It's been one kind of defeat and retreat and there hasn't been any, you know what I mean? There hasn't been a shining moment. Here's how I've explained it to students. Like I am old enough to remember the Clinton years, like the Bill Clinton years. And he, he had a lot of problems in his presidency, but for the most part, you know, it was happy days are here again. We had right. a good economy. God, the 90s right. seems yeah. so yeah. idyllic now. Right. And then when noon W won, <laughs> a lot of us were shocked and we felt like it was a, a big step back and we felt like they were eight dark years. And I think a lot of us felt like when, when he was elected or before he was elected, you know, like that the, the Clinton... Uh, sensibility about the country was going to go on forever. And then then somebody like W gets elected and you're like smacked in the face like, whoa, like what I thought was the zeitgeist was not yeah. the zeitgeist. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened this time. You have eight years of Obama, not a perfect presidency, but a pretty good one. Um, just in terms of, you know, at least what I expected of a president. He, he probably didn't achieve everything that right. we all wanted him to achieve. But you had a sense that at least the majority of people kind of felt the way that you did and that we were headed in the right direction. This election comes along, smacked in the face again, and you realize you were so naive to think that that that, that, that you were on the track with like the majority of the people in the country. Now, I have to say, three million more people voted for Hillary Clinton. You know? <laughs> so it's not like... She was defeated, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a huge defeat. Right. It's not like how naive was I, everybody, everybody else felt differently, but there were enough people that felt differently to change an election. And that's where we need to be concerned going, going forward. Maybe this is the pattern of the political climate. You know, it's switching back and forth, switching back and forth. Maybe that is supposed to be normal. Um, I don't know that anything about this current situation is normal, but right. but you, you go through a couple of those and you and you kind of realize, yeah, this is like the the uh, the factor that 
uh, I don't want to say equalizes, but you know, it, it takes the situation and balances things out every, every administration. Certainly. I mean, what I'm most alarmed at, I mean, I know that I feel like the country as a whole has always been too conservative and leans that direction. And the sort of Overton window has been pushed so far to the right that, you know, to, to, I think our, you know, to a negative effect ultimately. Um, but what really, I don't know, disturbs me is just the rhetoric, the, the racial rhetoric, the, right. the sexism, this sort of dark underbelly that I, mean, I really didn't think was, I mean, I would feel so naive to not be aware. I mean, I f feel like there was maybe the small contingent, but it seemed like the, the, that side of things is a lot larger of a group than I ever anticipated. Right. And I think, you know, like I said before, it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you're on. I really try to, um, be unbiased in my dealings with students because I know I live in Texas and I know there are a lot right. of conservative people here. And so it's not really a conservative liberal thing. It really is when you get to the point where you have a strong feeling of right versus wrong. And when you're talking about racist and sexist message and white supremacy, I have to kind of draw the line at right. that point and say, I do not agree with this. And I agree with you that like knowing that that underbelly is maybe bigger than what we had anticipated after eight years of having an African-American president um, or the first woman presidential candidate to know that those racist and sexual sexist attitudes are more widespread than you actually thought in 2017. Right. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Like, again, but it is like progress and then you take a step back and then you have to keep pushing and you can't take your eye off of it. But in this climate with, all the distractions and the barrage, I think it's very difficult to keep your eye on what the progress should be. And that's that's the biggest challenge, I think, going forward. Yeah, because I mean, I try to give myself a historical context of, okay, let, you know, World War II, right? You know, the world probably seemed, you know, what was seemed that like? bad. Right, right yeah. it seemed like things were never gonna <laughs> yeah. be the yeah. same again, or right. even in Vietnam, the division in the country right. surrounding the war. And, you know, the civil rights movement at the same time and all of these things sort of. So, you know what I mean? I think maybe it's sort of now since I'm in it and I'm younger, I don't have that perspective. And I try to reach for that and think, OK, yeah, the world maybe not is going <laughs> to maybe isn't ending because it kind of feels that's what it feels like. It feels like the current paradigm is definitely there's. We're it does at, feel like we're that. The, at the end of some type of thing. I don't know what. I, I think exactly it feels that like that. I agree. I'm, I hope. I hope we're not correct. <laughs> it definitely feels like thing that certain things are ending. But maybe it's not something to be so. You know what I mean? We we shall endure. <laughs> we so shall endure. I, I hope. <laughs> I am kind of interested to hear uh, along. You kind of mentioned this a little bit. What is the campus culture like at Texas State? Because I think that it seems like, at least in the media, that campus culture has gotten a little bit more raucous and with, uh, I guess, the social justice movement and sort of the backlash to that. I don't know if you've heard of any of the yeah. incidents at other colleges that it seems like it's gotten a little bit dicey on campus well you know texas state is a hispanic serving institution and so we have more than 25 percent of our students who identify as hispanic and so we are a university that values diversity and it's come from the top from our president but 
since the election, there have been a few examples of like racist flyers being passed out on oh, campus. Yeah, that's right. And uh, <clears throat> that's very, very disturbing. <coughs> um, it's very disturbing to a lot of us because of the fact that we are a Hispanic serving institution and we want to make sure that it feels like a safe place for right. everyone to be in. So I'm a little perplexed as to um, what is driving that. It, it's just that that faction feels more emboldened now with this administration where they, I don't know, they, they maybe didn't feel like they had as much of a platform for doing stuff like that in the past. And now they feel like if they do something like that, they're going to get much more attention for right. it. And it's much more like in line with what's happening in other places. I mean, I just hope it's limited to flyers and we deal with them and we take them down and we express ourselves and it doesn't become like a more serious type of a, of a scenario. Yeah. I don't, cause I feel like when I was at Texas state, it never, there never was a big activist sort of movement like there are at other, other schools. I mean, there definitely have been protests and people talking. Um, and, and you know, it's a college campus. So people have attitudes and differing attitudes, but it may not be like the same kind of protests that they have like you know, at other places yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you know about like Berkeley with all the craziness mm -hmm. going on that had gone on there. Um, Berkeley has a history of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there was, I don't know, I've, I hear, I listen to a lot of sort of these more libertarian kind of podcasts too, just to kind of get a feel of what those guys are saying. And it's very popular on those platforms for them to bring on these people that are, I guess, so professors that are getting. I mean, threatened and crazy thing. And now these are people that I forget. There was one like a Brett Weinstein at, I forget what the college is, uh, Evergreen College or something. It was a whole rigmarole revolving racism and reverse racism. And it was I mean, just it is crazy. Just, it's a very, um, the climate is very tough right now in terms of expressing yourself. And you have to be ready to, um, you know, go with your, positions you have to really be careful about what you say like i said i i want to respect my students uh opinions i want to be fair but i i may also express my opinion in class as long as i can do it in a way that's respectful to their right. opinions um you know we're, we're all dealing with that all the time i mean i think being able to be a model for students for how to handle conflict and how to deal with people who don't agree with you is important and, um, and, and I don't, I'm not always successful on that, but I mean, it's something that we're all constantly trying to do. Um, and I just, I just think it's more complicated in this environment. Right. I can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. Especially cause is Texas an open carry? Yeah. I mean, or not open know, carry, have, but you can concealed now. We have campus carry where it concealed, but you can bring guns into campus rooms it's different because you have to be over 21 and most of our students are under yeah, 21. And, but I mean, we do have, we do have some that are older than that. <laughs> so, um, but the thing is like, if we see it, then it's not concealed. And then we have, we're supposed to be able to like, like cancel class and get, get people out of there. Um, it has not been a problem with that has not been a problem yet, but I mean, it's obviously something that we worry right. about. And especially on this topic of like opposing opinions and, right. you know, yeah. these people, right. certain groups feeling, Right. emboldened by rhetoric and what have you. Right. Well, I mean, so related to racist stuff is um, sexist things and in the tech industry, and it's something that I've been thinking about really for my entire career, Right. is how, you know, we're in mass communication, we have a lot of females, we should be able to give them the technology skills that they need in a way that's maybe different than computer science. So I have 
long posited this idea that if I can teach students how to make websites and code and work with technology and digital media in mass communication, I'm going to cater to more female students and get more female students into technology careers. And, you know, we've seen some success because just last week we had MassCom week and one of the panels was a women who code panel. And there were four of our former students who are females who work as web developers. I mean, not just working in a tech company, they are web developers who graduated from our program, got the basic foundation. Obviously they had to learn more on their own and are now web developers. Um, with this new digital media uh, innovation major that we started last year at Texas State, we have a high percentage of females in the program. I mean, when a computer science major has maybe 16% females. So we really feel like we're approaching the digital divide in a unique and creative way. So when I hear about problems in the media industries, technology and entertainment, about sexual harassment okay. and sexual abuse and discrimination, I worry that I'm sending young women off into these fields uh, I, I need, we need more, obviously, so I can't you know, worry to the point where I tell them not to. And we need more women in these fields to kind of influence them. Um, but it, 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 it just worries me that, like, again, it's 2017 and we're having these conversations right. about Harvey Weinstein, like, sexually <laughs> harassing 50 women. Oh, that's another topic altogether. <laughs> altogether. Yeah. But I was thinking... For it, another podcast, and, because honestly, like, it's, uh, entertainment's not my area, but... It, it bleeds so much into what's happening in the tech right. industry. Certainly. And I think more in the context of the Google memo in particular would right. be something that we could talk about. But just one quick point on Weinstein is that I feel like that he was, this was like known for years yeah. and nobody, it's kind of weird that it dragged, like now we're at this there was point. There's like that Seth MacFarlane joke at one of the award shows where he was announcing the nominees for the Oscars or, or I think it was, was Emma Stone with him. She announced nominees and he goes, congratulations, lady. Now you never have to worry about pretending to find Harvey Weinstein attractive. Oh <laughs> right. And that was years ago. Right. You know, and so like uh, I think Courtney Love was quoted as saying, don't go near Harvey Weinstein. I mean, this stuff is well known in the industry. I feel like there was an episode of that show Entourage. This and this is how far back Probably. it goes because they had yeah. a they had like a Harvey Weinstein character yeah. on the on the show that was kind of like this really crazy. I don't think they hinted much about the sexual stuff at that point, but I mean, the, it was kind of obvious that he was sort of this megalomaniacal type figure. It's just power. It's right. power. Oh, yeah, of course. It's just power. It has nothing even to do with sexual attraction. It's like the ability to make somebody do something because you have the power to do it. Right. And it's very sad. But I mean, the Google memo is kind of a different thing. This is this guy who felt like he had, the freedom of speech to be able to say whatever he wanted to on a, you know, kind of a private Google network. It was like a chat board, like a Slack or something like right. that, that they were using. And he made this manifesto that, you know, women are biologically uh, incapable or not as efficient or effective at coding. And um, that was one of the things I asked the students last week on this panel or the former students, you know, uh, sure, we think he's crazy. We think that's nuts to have stated that kind of opinion again in 2017. <laughs> right. But um, people were critical of the fact that he was fired by Google for expressing these attitudes. And I asked all of them to say, like, well, if you were on your team, if you had to work with him, how would you feel? Right. You know, like knowing that this is how he felt. And that's why Google fired him is because it was a toxic environment for the rest of the team yeah, and true. people that he'd be interacting with. And 
people just don't think about things like that. Yes, sure, you have freedom of speech, but you don't have freedom from the repercussions of your speech. And you have to think more broadly about the other people that it's going to affect. And so every one of them was like, yeah, I'd be unlikely to want to be in meetings with him. I'd be unlikely to want to communicate with him about the needs of the product I was working on because I would always feel like he wasn't um, respecting me. Or one of them was even like, I would think he's crazy. I would just think he's crazy and nuts. And like, it would make me not want to interact with him at all. So yeah, I mean, it does, it, he, he did kind of create a toxic environment and he continues to, he continues to tweet and write about this idea. And he has created his own little brand around the biological imperative of <laughs> men right. versus women in coding. Uh, seriously. Oh yeah. He's definitely been on a number of the, like sort of the podcasters I was telling you about. I think he, he went on Joe Rogan. He was on like Ben Shapiro and there's a number of other ones that he's been on to talk about. I mean, technology was supposed to be the great equalizer, that you wouldn't have a body, that you would be, you know, hidden behind a computer and nobody would necessarily know who you were and you could create your own identities. Well, we've come so far from that where that's not the case. I mean, Facebook wants you to be yourself, not anonymous. You've (laughs) got all your pictures out there. We're all, you know, communicating in our cultural manners that we're not really trying out different identities anymore. We are who we are online. We are maybe the best possible version of ourselves <laughs> online, right? Um, and so this idea that um, Silicon Valley is a meritocracy is a little bit of a joke. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that I did this Knight Fellowship at Stanford and I was in Silicon Valley for a year. And I mean, I, mean, I really got to witness firsthand, nobody was overtly harassing me. But you can feel it in the environment when people pay attention to you or not, the kinds of things they talk about, the kinds of groups that get formed. Um, You can feel it around everything. Like if you're not exactly, like they use this term, culture fit, like if you don't fit their expectation of, of really who they look like for the most part, then you're not part of the conversations, you're not part of the solutions. And um, that's the part I think that's particularly disturbing because there's all sorts of research that talk about diverse companies, diverse teams and diverse companies have better results. They solve problems better. They're more uh, profitable. I saw Chris Saka at, uh, he's a venture capitalist, and I saw him speaking at South by Southwest. And he was, he basically said, if you don't want to have a diverse company and a diverse team, you're stupid because you don't right. like money. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, and it should just like come right down to that because you have no way to um, assess other people's problems or to be able to understand and have empathy for a situation if you don't have diverse teams, both ethnically as well as gender. Right. Because conventional wisdom, right? Period. I mean, it's just like people get stuck in these thought patterns or this is the way things have to be done. It's only when you have that diversity of opinion that the solutions that you might not have even considered... Absolutely. Because your perspective, your perspective is this, like right. you're not seeing these other factors that may be, you know, more apparent to someone else. Yeah. And so, you know, people say that Silicon Valley is a meritocracy, that people succeed based on their capabilities, but that's um, a smokescreen. I oh, mean, right. they're, they're just, you know, certain types of people will succeed right. in that. And then there are a lot of um, fakers, you know, people that are posers that are trying to be like all those people. And I mean, it was just, it was just a very odd climate I felt out there. I think, you know, Austin is a, is a tech scene, but it's, it's a different feel here. Maybe some of that is happening, but it's certainly not the pervasive 
attitude in Austin. I think it's much more welcoming and open um, to a range of people. And we have just a lot of, you know, different things going on here, a lot of different activities that are much more open to people. I, I won't say it's completely perfect in Austin. I mean, I definitely, you know, feel like when I go to some of these meetups and they're like young white guys at the meetup, they're kind of like, why is this old lady here? <laughs> but um, they're not mean to me. And, right. you know, once they realize why I'm there, because I'm a professor and I'm trying to make opportunities for my students and they're mostly kind of welcoming. Um, but I, I feel like I definitely know that in Silicon Valley, it was a much darker sort of um, closed environment uh, that I felt when I was there. I mean, I've definitely spoken to female friends of mine here that work in the tech industry, and it's it's more like the subtle ways that, you know what I mean? People will, like, a guy will, like, pay ask them if they understand, you know what I mean? They'll yeah. try to kind of, like... Patronizing comments. Exactly, sort of that, man, sort of that mansplain vibe. Microaggressions. That's I call them thousands of microaggressions. <laughs> like right. it's, And that's really what all the panelists said last week was, you know, none of them had really experienced kind of overt harassment, but all of them had felt these things that you're talking about, that you, you constantly have to feel like you're proving yourself in this right. environment. And it becomes so internalized that you don't even know that you're doing it. Right. Right. And they had to kind of think like, oh, yeah, that does happen. And here's how I deal with it. All of them were really optimistic about it. They were like, you know, that's just what it's like. And, you know, that's I, I've learned how to deal with that. And, you know, right. and it's like we need to get beyond seriously, you know, putting the, the responsibility on the females to just deal with the environment. And same thing with um, the racial issues like, yeah, this is just how it is. And you've got to learn how to deal. You've got to learn how to hang. OK, that is. Uh, it, it's exhausting and it's counterproductive. Right. Yeah. I mean, I try, I, I'm certainly probably guilty of what is it? Uh, the, well, actually <laughs> sometimes, but I try not to. Yeah. But I mean, I, I don't know. I have a different opinion. I don't know. I don't think that these biological um, or I just, to me, things are so much more cultural than biological in this, especially in this discussion. I don't think you can deny that there are certain things that biologically and physiologically women are better at than men and vice versa, right? But I think so much emphasis is getting placed on these things that are total cultural constructs when you with, say, related to, to things like coding, right? I mean, when, Yeah, when you say that something is biologically predestined, you're shutting it down. Right. You're basically saying that sorry, there's no way you can do this. Right. And there's no sort of cultural learning knowledge work you could do to do that. And I think that we too, it's just too simple of an argument to say that, well, like biologically they're not capable of doing right. this without really thinking about what the cultural aspects were that kind of created the environment, the ways that behaviors manifest biologically could go in very different ways depending on the culture yeah exactly it's right. like these cultural things will impact the biology as well you know what i mean right. your environment if you're pushed towards a certain thing right. from an early age even behaviorally right because right. i think women you know women are supposed to be quiet and docile and, and this and this and this and men are supposed to be the aggressors and blah 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 right well, that can be a you know, disservice to both genders. Right. And when you see, you know, the or cultural sexes. environment yeah. that makes men feel like they have to be tough and violent versus, you know, women being docile. I mean, this is all sort of culturally created. But, you know, if you look at like men are biologically larger 
you know, and women are smaller, but like that shouldn't matter in coding. Right. <laughs> like, True. Like, and even that, like, even like, then there's like female MMA right. fighters I mean, that would can, kick my ass. You can always find examples of giant women and tiny men, right? I mean, right. you can find this, but if you look at like overall, like average height, weight, whatever, if that's the way you want to go, that should not matter when you're coding. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. Maybe if you're going to be a lumberjack or, you know, an <laughs> MMA fighter, right? Like, like, okay. But um, and actually, one of my friends in uh, the Knight Fellowship, his wife is Ronda Rousey's sister. So, oh, wow. so yeah. So, talk about a badass woman, <laughs> right? Oh, I'm sure there's a five foot tall, hundred pound woman that could just destroy me. <laughs> sure. I mean, and again, like like uh, fighting doesn't have to go to the biggest person. There are definitely. I mean, even if we're right. just talking about that kind of thing, any kind of sports stuff can be more about strategy than it is about heft. Although I think they're all, you know, when you talk about sports, it's interrelated, but not with coding. Like, <laughs> keep coming back to this. It doesn't matter how much you weigh or how tall you are, whether you can code. Right. I mean, I can't code for shit. And you're talking, you had four women on your panel that are badasses. So. They are badass coders working in a range of companies as web, as web developers. They work for um, corporate security company. One works for an insurance company. One works for Cox Media, which does, um, you know, one of their their uh, innovation products. And then one works for a straight up like web agency. So I think that also kind of shows that there is another one of my sort of theories or philosophies is that every industry needs coders because every industry has problems that can be solved with programming. And if we're not teaching programming skills in all disciplines, if we're kind of like saying, well, the programmers are in computer science, they're not going to understand the domain. They're not going to understand the domain's problems, the users of that domain. So we need to start teaching programming, not just in mass communication, but like really across the curriculum, across the university, so that there'll be people who kind of understand the problems and able to solve them. Actually, I think that's a great way to, to close out the podcast, honestly. And I definitely want to thank you. I think the work that you have done at Texas State in pushing forth this, you know, the, the necessity and importance of coding in relation to journalism and mass communication as a whole is obvious. I mean, just tremendous. I mean, just the impact that you've had on me alone, but obviously these women, it's incredible. And it's, I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to take your courses and have that experience because I think you've really served the community so well and opened a lot of people's eyes and pushing that paradigm at Texas State with those, maybe some people that are a little bit resistant towards technology and what have you, so. Well, thank you. Thank you for all for saying all of that. <laughs> I mean, it's always nice when people pay attention to what you're doing and I'm, I'm pleased with the results that we've had. And I kind of feel like we're just getting started. I think right? there's so much more to go. So I was really happy to have the chance to talk with you about all these things today. I mean, I think the, the new major in particular, that's, that's really great and just awesome. Keep up the good work and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much.